0: Welcome to The Masculinist Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Wren. To keep up with all the content and subscribe to my flagship newsletter, please visit themasculinist.com. And now for today's episode. Hello, this is Aaron and welcome back to the podcast. I'm continuing today with my series about the old Protestant establishment, about the old wasps, the white Anglo Saxon Protestants. So I did an introduction uh, to them, uh, especially through the lens of the work of E. Digby Baltzell, the sociologist who popularized the term wasp, uh, and uh, um, who I just wrote a major retrospective about uh, for American Affairs magazine. Then I traced a little bit of the history of the upper class, uh, you know, over the course of the history of America up until, say, the 1960s when the old establishment essentially collapsed. And what I want to do today is talk a little bit about some of the implications of the collapse of the establishment and how that can help explain some of the things that we see in our world today. And I don't want to be over-prescriptive, over-determined, and suggest that this is the sole factor or the only factor causing the things that we see but it is something that, that plays a role and something that we don't like to think about. And then in, in future episodes, uh, I'm not sure how many I'm going to do. I, I might want to do one specifically dedicated to the idea of a gentleman. Not sure if I'll totally work that one in today. Uh, if I don't, I'll maybe do it next week. Uh, I want to talk about an example of one particular wasp character who was a phenomenal leader, uh, whose uh, life illustrates what we lost by the decline of those. And uh, then I might talk a little bit about the particular brand of conservatism uh, represented by Baltzell and how that's very different from the political conservative that uh, emerged with the the Buckleyite movement uh, in the post-war era. So one of the things that uh, is very related to the decline of establishment is the decline of political norms in society where everybody's talking about, you know, norms in Washington today. Oh, it would be, you know, a violation of norms to use the filibuster to block all judicial nominations, uh, for example, or it'd be a violation of norms to, to, to do this, it'd be a violation of norms to do that. So we're constantly hearing about this degradation of norms. And I, I do think there is a sense in which today, uh, in politics and other domains of life, there are fewer scruples than there used to be. There used to be essentially unwritten rules of the road, unwritten codes by which people uh, behaved themselves and conducted themselves such that we didn't have to have this incredibly rule-bound society. And well, now today we see the opposite. People are saying, look, how can I exploit the system for personal gain, for political gain? Sometimes not just looking at you know loopholes in, in the in the actual rules, but even just just violating the rules completely and say, we're just going to go do what we want and and, and and forget about that. And this is one of the things I think Balzel very clearly um, would have seen as related to the decline of the establishment because remember, an establishment in, in Bolzel's terminology means that, a significant percentage of the elite positions in society are held by members of the upper class. This is significant because uh, of twofold. One, the upper class was a genuine social community in a way that the college-educated or the working class or the wealthy are not. I mean, these are people who were raised together they were in clubs together, they went to school together, they vacationed together, etc. And while they didn't necessarily know, all know each other personally, this kind of dense network of people really was more, much more tight-knit than what we have today. And, and it really was. It was a real community of actual people, often who had, you know, families had known each other for generations. And because it was an actual social community— imagine, say, a fraternity or another actual organization you might be part of, there were sort of social dynamics that uh, caused people to behave in accordance with the norms of that social group. So that social group had norms and standards. And because it was a genuine social group, these norms could be enforced. Because if you weren't following the norms, right, if you were you know, violating the honor code or something of that nature of this group, then there would be social consequences. You may end up ostracized from your friends, right? And if you were a member of the upper class who all of a sudden you're getting shunned by your peers, that would be painful social exclusion because uh, it, there's only one upper class in a society, which is one of the things uh, that uh, that also talked about. There could be many kind of lower and middle classes, many different groupings there, but there's only one upper class in society. And so if you find yourself socially marginalized within that group, that would be painful. And so the various norms of that group, uh, you know, there's some social pressures to conform. And so one of those norms was the gentleman's code, this idea that you should behave like a gentleman. Again, maybe I'll talk about that today, maybe I won't. But when you have a, you know, an when the elite domains of society or the key domains of society have elites, leaders in those domains who are largely members of the upper class, what this means is that the upper class's code of conduct becomes normative in those institutions and in context because those upper class people have the, the actual community control that you know keeps them in line and the, the fact that there's so many of them lets them essentially keep everyone else in line, right? So it allowed—the the, the presence of the upper class in the establishment era helped enforce these sort of socio political norms. Now, I would argue that's probably mostly the case from kind of the late 19th century through, you know, to the 60s. Maybe, maybe not— been forever. In the in the pre-Civil War era, right, there were, you know, incredible cheating in elections and unbelievable acrimony. And so in essence, with the development of this nationalized, uh, you know, uh, upper class nationalized economy, maybe that's really when this era of norms sort of emerged, right? And, the, you know, they started to chip away at corruption and things like that. But I think the key is there really was something that, that sort of made this era a, kind of a high watermark of, you know, uh, of kind of people following uh, rules um, in, in a sense. Not just the written rules, but the unwritten rules as well. The other thing that the upper class had is that they were sort of this bearers of traditional authority. Uh, they, they sort of, you know, the, the sort of the bearers of traditional values. You know, historic heritage, right? Some of these families went back to the founding. They went back to the Mayflower. They went back to the colonial era, and as a result, you know, all of that heritage and all the traditional values imbued by those lines were sort of, you know, in these in these families, and so that kind of shaped and constrained their own behaviors in a sense. Uh, but when they had this upper class and this establishment. What that meant was a lot of those traditional values, uh, traditional cultural values, were esteemed and highly valued, and the norms, right? The way we've always done things is a, a part of that. Not just the, again, not just the uh, the written rules, uh, but also the unwritten rules. The way that things are done, the way that things are happened. When do you use uh, your filibuster? Now, uh, for example. It's not just about like what the rules say, it's what the, the norms and the codes say, and a lot of that is sort of historically informed. Well, today, what do we have? There's no establishment, and so there's no way to you know, enforce these unwritten rules through the types of social pressures and sort of traditional values, tradition in America is actively despised. And so all of the traditional considerations go away. And we see, that, uh, we see that manifested in the decline of political norms. Again, the gentleman, the idea of the gentleman and the idea that men should behave like gentlemen, that was an expression of the Anglo-American upper class. Uh, you know, lots of cultures, of course, had this idea. There's upper class gentlemen. There's, there's a standard of behavior for gentlemen. But, you know, the standards of behavior for a gentleman in, say, uh, y- you know, the, the court of Louis XIV in, in France— Probably very different from that in Victorian England. A lot of the, a lot of the rules uh, that that we think we have about what it means to be a gentleman were particular codes uh, of that era, and related. This is related to norms here. One of those rules that we've always had in America that that's always been big in the Anglo kind of the Anglo world, less so elsewhere, is the concept of fair play. Right, the idea again, you you play by the rules, you follow the rules. You don't cheat. That's not to say cheating, you know, hasn't always been here, but cheating, you know, it was always frowned upon in most domains. And so you think about, uh, and you know, uh, Boltsel talks about amateur sports as sort of being a, a transmitter of the values of fair, fair play because amateurism again was very much one of the values of the Anglo American upper, upper class. That's maybe a lecture for another day. Uh, but, you know, for example, when football got started in America, it wasn't, you know, an amateur sport. It was the Ivy League uh, was really where it w- was big. Uh, tennis, um, yeah, uh, golf, uh, for example. And, you know, fair play really dominated these sports, whereas baseball, it was always a little different because baseball had always been a kind of a professional sport. It had not been an amateur, upper-class sport uh, in America. Baltzell actually wrote a book about tennis called Sporting Gentlemen, where he talks about what happened to tennis Uh, with the end of of the amateur era and and the rise of the Open era in 1968. So all these tournaments, when you say something's called the U.S. Open, what it means is it was open to professionals. It was not just restricted to amateurs anymore. And so the first professionals who kind of made that transition from the amateur era to the professional era, like Arthur Ashe, really kind of followed the old gentleman's code, Whereas that kind of that that next generation after him, you know, the Jimmy Connors and the John McEnroe, they just acted horrible, right? And so you can see that kind of degradation in standards there. And tennis was interesting because he mentions that in continental Europe, this fair play concept didn't really exist. So uh, when, you know, some of these uh, British or American teams went uh, one time to play in Paris, I think it was at at the French Open. The French wanted their guys to win. So they said, I know what we're going to do. We're going to soak our clay courts in water uh, so that we can condition them to make them uh, better for our players and put the British at a disadvantage. And you saw that you saw that happen in multiple continental countries. And that was something that the the British, the Americans never would have done that. And so we see in America, right, cheating is now endemic. This idea that I will not lie, cheat, or steal, and I will not tolerate those who do, right, that is a... Uh, you know, that is an honor tradition now that what happens at West Point uh, is like massive cheating scandals. And they're essentially, you know, mostly letting people off. Now, I think they've sort of backed off that. They're they're now, you know, giving them a little bit of a punishment, but they're certainly not being expelled. And so this idea that like fair play this like play by the rules and everybody's going to play by the rules. Uh, and then we'll all shake hands at the end of the game. That's like an old set of rules from the old WASP era. We just don't have that anymore. And again, this is very distressing, I think, to many Americans, particularly those who are older and were marinated in this idea that fair play is so important. You just got to understand, you know, that value is on its way out in America. And, you know, it's in part a result of this sort of collapse of the culture-bearing class for values like fair play, um, for example. And so what we end up with, uh, again, is, you know, decline in standards, declines in norms. We also see declining trust in institutions. And, you know, but keenly observes, hey, trust in an establishment uh, is really related to trust in institutions because an establishment is essentially an institutional institutionalization uh, uh, of a certain form of, of culture and norms in American life. And so when that's gone trusted institution decline, conspiracy theories go up. And so things like that he would see. He also talked about, hey, the lack of an upper class can easily translate into some sort of a a Caesarism or populism. And so when you no longer have this uh, socially cohesive upper class group that can serve as a counterweight to various forces in society, those forces become unbalanced and you end up with charismatic populist kind of caesar-esque people or wannabe of caesar-esque people uh like uh like um trump and he talks about that you know it's 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 like the, the the decline of the establishment i'm I'm kind of botching this quote but it's something like the decline of establishment inevitably leads to you know the charismatic caesar with his, on horseback with his legions of personal followers and again, I don't think Trump is a literal Caesar here, but I'm just talking about like kind of metaphorically what we do see here, right? Trump is really a unique phenomenon in America because his followers are followers of him personally, not followers of him as the standard bearer um, uh, uh, as, uh, of the party. Uh, so that that is that is kind of the, the step of, of where charisma has now gone beyond sort of media charisma, like, say, Bill Clinton might have had or Ronald Reagan, and it's now becoming very personal charisma. We also see the impact of this in the rise of a more authoritarian character in America because, again, in the age of the establishment, there was a certain sort of deference paid to the WASP. I mean, uh, you know, they were the leaders, yes, but those who were sort of being led sort of said, yes, these are our first families, right? Almost like you might view the the aristocracy of your— these are the people who are sort of, you know, it is right that they are the leaders of society. Uh, And so this high view of authority and authority figures meant people essentially went along with their leadership because it seemed like the right kind of right and proper thing to do. Well, you know, now what do we see? Uh, you know, in America, we don't have that. So what happens when people won't follow, uh, follow you because of this sort of deference democracy, if you will, we now have to become much more forceful. And Baltzell has a great quote on this. He says, Viable civilizations are, are almost literally clothed in authority. And when the emperor's clothes are removed, his only recourse is to the exercise of naked power. And, he, and again, he felt that this was particularly dangerous because he was very influenced by Tocqueville, uh, and, and he sort of saw atomization of society as a big problem. Atomization really paves the way for tyranny uh, in a lot of ways. You know, he sort of talked about a bureaucratic despotism and other things, which Balzal which also, also highlights, but it's this very atomized society that, you know, can easily fall under the sway of, of you know, a very charismatic person. And, and so because of that, um, you know, he that's one of the reasons he really liked this upper class establishment concept because this upper class was one of the very few genuine social communities in the country that was a bulwark against atomization and the negatives that, that came with that. And so he, he really felt what he called a wealthy, declassed elite. As one of the greatest threats to freedom in America, and I think we've seen that. I think we've seen that. We've seen a tr- tremendous diminution of practical freedom uh, in the United States today. And so, those are just a, a few consequences that that are kind of helped explain. And and I'll talk a little bit. Uh, I'll talk a little bit more o- about it in uh, again subsequent episodes. Maybe do an entire one on on the gentleman because uh, I just saw another piece on on. Why men should be gentlemen—that kind of set me off—and uh, maybe time for me to uh, uh, to do uh, to do a piece on that. Until next week, thanks for listening.